I'm here with the sister wives. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh. Is anybody listening? Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I am the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have the chair of the Florida Democratic Party, Terry Rizzo. Chairwoman Rizzo and I discuss the state of the Florida Democratic Party and the efforts that the state party are taking to win this November. On our panel discussion, we talk again about coronavirus and the resurgence in coronavirus cases here in Florida. We also dive into the Supreme Court decisions dealing with discrimination against LBGTQ people in the workplace and the repeal of DACA or uh, the Dreamers. But let's get some party info out of the way. In an effort to support our candidates, we are putting on candidate spotlights so that voters can listen to the candidates and hear their plans on how to help their constituents. Our first one is on Tuesday, June 30th, with County Commission District 5 candidate David Turiubiartes, Jr. You can sign up for this event on our website. Each subsequent week, we'll focus on another candidate, so check on our website for those dates and sign up. We will have audio and video of each spotlight available on the podcast and also on our website as well. As always, there are a lot of ways you can step up and volunteer. We have virtual phone banks going on throughout the month, and we encourage everyone to get involved in that. Our voter protection team needs volunteers to counter the Republicans' stated effort of intimidation. Most of you guys know from listening to the podcast, Republicans have stated that they plan to have thousands of volunteers prepared to question voters on their eligibility to vote. So we need people to step up to counter this act of intimidation. So please check out our website, join the voter protection team today. All of this information can be found on our website, www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Finally, we have some generous donors who have announced that they will match July donations dollar for dollar. So if you can donate any amount to help us this election, please do so now because your donation will be doubled effectively this month. So please Go to our website, hit the big red donate button at the top of the screen, and donate today. So that's all for the news this week. We will be right back with our interview with the chairwoman of the Florida Democratic Party, Terry Rizzo. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. And click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support. We are very pleased to welcome the chair of the Florida Democratic Party, Terry Rizzo, to the show. Chairwoman Rizzo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a, it's a true pleasure to be here with you today. So I have to ask uh, your reaction to the state releasing the numbers of coronavirus cases just earlier today. Uh, you know, we've hit 5,500 cases, which is 36% more than the previous daily record set just mm-hmm. four days earlier. What is your reaction to that? And you know, the overall spike we've witnessed over the last three weeks? Uh, well, it, it, my reaction is probably the same as yours and, and, and all the people who are, who are watching and are listening to us. Um, this is appalling. Uh, I think it's, it shows uh, uh, we are still in phase one. It hasn't stopped. 
um, that the uh, the lack of leadership from Donald Trump uh, at, the, at the top uh, on the national level and, and uh, Ron DeSantis and the administration here on the state level um, is, is just appalling and, and people still are in danger um, and, and we need to do everything we can to, to get it under control. Um, I believe there should be mandatory mask wearing uh, and uh, I think many people agree with that um, because we need to protect each other. Um, and we need to uh, uh, to observe, you know, follow the medical the medical advice is, is what what I'd say. That includes from from uh, the top medical advisors here in the state. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's it, it kind of I, I hate to say that I'm not surprised, but mm-hmm. I am shocked by the numbers because yeah. um, you know we kind of everyone predicted it, so it's yep. not not a surprise that this is starting to happen. It's exactly um, right. Mm-hmm. So what is the state of the party at this moment in time? What are we focusing on and uh, what do we need to do over these final four to five months? Oh, well, thank you for asking that. And I think uh, say that the state of the party is the strongest that we have been in a in a very long time. Um, and uh, I don't know if you saw the numbers that have, were released this morning or have, uh, with regard to our vote by mail, for, which is one example. Um, did you see that this morning? I did. Since March the 17th, the Florida Democrats have registered over 350,000 Democrats into vote by mail. Uh, that's just since March 17th, uh, taking us up to over 1.6 million Democrats who are registered into vote by mail and going strong. Um, the numbers since March 17th compares to just 160,000 uh, Republicans. The Republicans are believing um Donald Trump's lies, you know, about vote by mail, and uh, and we're not. Uh, our the lives of our voters are important, and to us, and we want everybody to vote safely, uh, so that registering to people vote for vote by mail since we don't know what's going to be happening um, in August and in November, that we believe everybody should be registered to vote by mail as insurance, just in case uh, people are not able to vote at the polls. So, the, so with regard to the state of the party. We've been focusing on on getting our people registered to vote by mail. As you know, that was a part of our strategy even last year, as we as we began getting organized. Um, it's 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 doubled down now because it's so important on every level. Actually, uh, not just vote by mail. That's one one metric. But, uh, we are also out registering the Republicans uh, for the first time since 2012. The party is starting an election with a higher number than in the previous cycle of registered voters. Uh, our goal starting last year was to, you know, as we began to look what we needed to do to, to get to the mountaintop and, and do better, part of the strategy uh, focused on voter registration, which had not happened um, in a massively organized way since the Obama years. So we put those plans into place um, and uh, uh, in, in a number of different ways and focused on voter registration and it worked. As we outregistered the Republicans, and even including voter purges, uh, are net up over the Republicans, and uh, our starting an election year actually increased our margin back up to to two percent over the Republicans. We are, and I'm very proud to say, we passed five million registered Democrats. Um, we did that back in uh, in. In February, and we are now at five million and hundred and twenty-nine thousand uh, and registered Democrats. So we're, we're increasing uh, as, as we go. So voter registration is another metric, and that's uh, across the board in, in the state, specifically in in districts where those extra votes will make a difference to various either state legislative or congressional seats or, or municipal seats. You know, focusing on adding voters uh, in the districts where um, those extra votes will, will help carry seats. Um, we already know that if these numbers had been in existence in 2018, that we, we would have been able to pick up at least five or six more state house seats based on these numbers. So, uh, so that's what we're looking for, for as, we, as we go forward into this, this year. Uh, the third thing that we focused on um, in terms of where we are in terms of strength, um, it has to do with our, our volunteer base. In 2016, um, we had about uh, 2,000 volunteers, between 1,500 and 2,000 volunteers registered as as volunteers in the van. Um, Now, there obviously were other volunteers around the state through county parties and uh, um, through clubs and caucuses who may not have been uh, registered as volunteers. Um, That was a metric. This year, we already have over 19,000 registered volunteers who are trained and, 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 and registered with us. And that, again, won't include some of the folks in county parties and, and clubs and caucuses. But that shows you the, the, the enthusiasm and the organization and that we've got going around the state. And also with regard to the party itself in terms of the size of, of the staff, 
We are now the largest state party in the country. We have more than 240 staff uh, on board, that in, including 10 digital organizers, organizers that are, that are very specifically uh, dealing with different platforms and social media, for example, TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or uh, Twitter um, and Pinterest. Each one is a different platform. Each one is different. And we have organizers working uh, and training volunteers on each of these to be our digital army. Um, we also have a field staff of uh, over 175 now, actually almost over, over 200 now, um, and uh, increased staff on every level. So we are fielding the largest staff and the largest organization ahead of, a, of an election that we've ever had. As I say, we are building the campaign and have been building the campaign since uh, since last year. Uh, we're ready for uh, for now Joe Biden as our nominee to come in for the, for the official campaign going forward. And that doesn't even include voter protection, which I know we're going to get to. Well, I'm going to go. Let's go dive right yeah. into it right now, because the we as the party, the state party has put a lot of, of effort and resources into fielding a voter protection team at the state level mm -hmm. with the focus on coordinating it down to the local county and having local county teams uh, that are working uh, in each individual county. Talk about the intentions behind that effort and what are the successes that we hope to see from that effort come November. Well, thank you again, and exactly right. And we know that uh, that voter protection is absolutely key um, because we know the Republicans are constantly, and they, they've told us what they're gonna do. They've announced their intention, um, which is basically to suppress the vote in every way, shape or form that they possibly can. Um, and they, uh, they've already announced that they're going to have trained uh, people out at the polls, you know, basically as intimidators. They are, are working to suppress the vote by trying to suppress vote by mail nationwide and to a lesser degree in Florida. They're just not expanding the opportunities. They are balking at every uh, every every all the, the various lawsuits to expand voting such as to amendment four so so we saw that one coming you know after the, the previous election so uh, we began uh, immediately at following the uh, 2018 election to start to prepare uh, and started to to look at and uh, developing a voter protection program and I'm extremely proud to say that we were actually the second state to hire a voter protection director after Georgia because they never there's go <laughs> following the, the last election. Um, and uh, but we developed a full time voter protection team um, starting last year, starting last March with the hiring of Brandon Peters, who many of many of the audience will know and will recognize, who has put together a terrific voter protection program. We now have uh, four full time staff, including three full time voter protection attorneys on staff um, and building voter protection leadership teams in, in counties across the state. Currently at 42, 42 of the 67 counties have voter protection teams. 1,600 volunteers are involved in this. Many of them are attorneys, others are not, but uh, people who are working uh, to be on, on the vote pro team because we know that we're, uh, we need robust work at the polls and in advance, working with supervisors of elections in advance to head pro problems off at the pass, uh, such as polling locations, working with the, the uh, supervisors of elections teams to uh, have countywide vote by mail ballots mailed out to all voters. We've worked with a number of counties to do that, working to solve issues that, that, that have come up on a case-by-case -case basis because we now have a hotline. We've instituted a 24-hour hotline not this year, which typically, as you know, Jeff, these will go up in the summer for an election it happens. Ours went up last summer uh, and so that voters who had questions about voting, um, any issue whatsoever, you know, how do I register for vote by mail? What's my precinct? I'm an amendment for a voter. You know, I, I, what do I need to do? So those are the kinds of questions that would, would come into the hotline. And our folks have answered thousands of calls. It's a it's a 24 hour hotline staffed live 18 hours a day, um, six hours, of course, recording, but then responded to the next day by our, our voter protection team. So that's uh, extremely important. If I can, I'd like to give that hotline number. It's 833-VOTE-FLA. 833-VOTE-FLA or in numbers 833-868-3352. So 833-868-3352. And we want everybody to promote the hotline on your social media channels um, using the hashtag, uh, hashtag voter protection hotline because we know how important this is. And, uh, and uh, we also have been involved with several of the lawsuits that have gone forward as well to, uh, uh, to expand voting access and to prevent voter suppression as much as possible, because we know this is coming. 
Right. Yeah. And everyone knows here, uh, we've had Ann and Marv, our voter protection leads on, and mm-hmm. they've talked about it and they're doing a fantastic job. Working yes. With thank Sanders. you. Yeah. Um, and that's an example of the kind of teams we have, you know, the people that are, you know, that are working on this, uh, you know, in, in your county, in your area, um, who, who know your local issues and, and are, are helping lead the team there. So thank you, Ann and Marv and, and, and all the others working with you. So the Florida Democratic Party was able to field a candidate in every Florida state house mm-hmm. and Senate race, except uh-huh. for one Florida house seat. What does All that right. say to you about the state of the party here in Florida? And what were the goals behind filling all of those seats? How about that? Well, isn't that terrific? Oh, every seat except for House District 5 up in the panhandle. And that one would have been, except there were, was an issue with the paperwork in, in qualification. But 119 of 120 state house seats and all 21 out of 21 state Senate seats will have a Democrat uh, running in that county um, or in that district, I should say. Um, and that tells us that the Democrats are organized and motivated and that we are taking it to uh, to every county in the state uh, and that we are uh, prepared to win. No seat is safe. Um, and uh, and we're doing uh, everything that we can. We, you know, we, having a Democrat running for office brings out, brings out people who will vote for that person. Having a candidate talking about Democratic values, even in, in red areas, forces the Republicans to play defense instead of, uh, you know, spending money somewhere else uh, or sources elsewhere, it will make them stay home, if you will. Um, and uh, we have great candidates in, 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 all of these, in all of these seats. Some of them won't win, and, and we know, but uh, many of them will. And we know automatically that 12 Democrats uh, automatically were elected without opposition, and uh, another 11 will be elected because there are only Democrats on the ballot. You know, running for those seats. So we will have 23 Democrats automatically. We have 23 Democrats uh, automatically in, in the state uh, state house. Um, they only have one automatic, you know, it's because of, the, of all our wonderful candidates stepping up. And I should say this is thanks to the efforts of a whole lot of people um, who were involved in helping recruit candidates and helping, uh, helping fund these candidates so that they could be qualified. A number of candidates also qualified by petition before it came to a screeching halt you know, by the coronavirus. But, uh, but it's, it's part of the, uh, the organization motivation. It shows people want to run. It shows that, that, that people are, will be out there talking about democratic values. And as, I, as we say, no seat is safe. Yeah. So, and I think one, one of the hallmarks of the plan that you put forward when you decided to run for chairwoman of the party wasn't, was you advocated for a 67 county approach and Mm -hmm. and you can kind of see that uh, coming to fruition with uh, every seat, uh, all these seats being run and and that we're going to compete in every single county. What was, what was your thinking behind uh, that approach when you decided to run and outside of the fact that we have races or candidates in all of these races, how has that approach worked so far in terms of really stretching the FDP beyond the traditional big counties that have been kind of at the forefront in the past? I think it's it's uh, pretty self-explanatory that it's important to to compete everywhere. Um, we cannot win, and history shows us that we we are not successful um, if we rely only on certain areas of the state. Uh, that we have to have all parts of the state, you know, included and, and all parts of the state involved. The big counties can't carry the entire state. The I-4 corridor alone can't carry the the, the entire state. Uh, so the, the North Florida can't carry the entire state. Everybody has to be involved and, and working together. Uh, and the 67 county strategies is, is uh, kind of an extension of the, the, the DNC's uh, every zip code counts. Uh, so in our in our case, it's every it's every county counts. Um, and so the over strategy is in red counties you know obviously it's it's all about the margins it's all about when margins are so close in in florida when we lose an election like bill nelson's by 10,033 votes um we need to you know to make sure that we build our margins everywhere so um limiting losing by less if you will in in some of the redder counties um making sure that we build up the vote and get the swing counties flipped um, and the swing districts flipped, and then running it up in the, in the counties like mine. I'm in Palm Beach County, where we are a solid Democratic county, but we could be even more Democratic, you know. So running it up and doing everything that, that we can here. So that's the the 67 county strategy: is that every vote counts everywhere, um, and a vote in Gulf County vote counts just as much as one in Palm Beach County. So having candidates running and people working and DECs um, and uh, clubs and caucuses and with our allies across the state, um, it's important to have us all rowing together with our oars in the water in the same direction. 
Right. Yeah. And, and I continually tell people here in Collier County, because we are a red county, I tell them, you know, if you look back to the 2,537 votes, if we could have found those 537 votes mm-hmm. anywhere in the state, you know, if you could have made a thousand yep. extra votes here in Collier mm-hmm. County, then maybe the hanging chads don't play a part and that election is flipped. So yep. every vote counts every every single where. So I totally agree with that. Absolutely. And I want to say, I mean, Collier County is a perfect example of that. Look at the work that you've done over there in, in terms of organizing and the candidates that are running in Collier, you know, and uh, and, and the work that you're doing. And uh, as I said, your legal team, your, your precinct people, um, your clubs and caucuses and, and all the work that you're doing, you're adding to the total. And you may not win uh, overall, you know, in terms of, of total number of votes, but you're certainly making a huge difference and you're getting out the Democrat uh, Democratic vote and appealing to a lot of MPAs who otherwise uh, uh, wouldn't have somebody to appeal to, if you will, or somebody to be appealed to. Um, and uh, even, you know, the, the intelligent Republicans are going to be attracted to that. Exactly. So you were the, the chair of the Palm Beach County Democratic Party before taking on the FDP chair position. What mm-hmm. what was the biggest transition point in that change? What did you see? What was the biggest surprise in, in changing from a county chair and then taking the step up to the state party chair? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I was I've been the chair in Palm Beach since 2012 um, and became chair of the FDP in December of 2017. Um, and it's it's I mean, not really a surprise, but the just the uh, the overwhelming magnitude of the job, uh, you know, that uh, uh, what we have here in Florida um, and the 67 counties and, and the huge population that we have, you know, we're the third largest state in the country. Palm Beach County alone, you might know, is in geographically larger than two states. And if it were the uh, in population, we would be the 43rd large state, uh, 43rd largest state in Palm Beach County alone. Um, but statewide, we are now the biggest, you know, the, the third biggest state and really um, comprised of three separate areas, as everybody famously knows, you know, uh, between North Florida, Central Florida and South Florida, very, very different. So um, having uh, such a large and comprehensive state with so many um, different interests and so many personalities and, and uh, um, all of the all of the things that needed to be done to try to, to get everything organized um, and the program to a place where we um, are able to do everything we can. So, so that was, uh, again, it wasn't really a surprise, but it was just the the magnitude of it. What keeps you up at night? What are you most worried about during this election? What is it that you're that when you think about it, you're like, that is the thing that I, you know, I worry about with this election. There's, you know, whether the, an October surprise of some kind, which is why we've done everything we can to try to prepare uh, as much in advance as we can in every way, um, you know, by having our voter protection team, for example, in, in place and prepared um, by having the organization that we've got. Um, by having people everywhere, you know, working hard. We don't know the um, uh, ex- exactly. So that's that's the one thing. And the other thing, of course, is making sure that we get out all our votes, you know. So uh, that's not the, the October surprise, but that's the one thing is, is to make sure that, that we get out all of our votes. And uh, so make, you know, preparing in advance, working hard, um, and making sure, making sure everybody's on the same page relative to that. That's why vote by mail is so important and can be very important because we can chase those votes and get those in. Last question, if you could pick one thing that every voter should think about before they cast their ballot this November, what would it be? Mm, well, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Um, and as in, uh, for Florida voters, um, and particularly for Democrats, we know that Donald Trump cannot win the state of Florida, excuse me, win the presidency without the state of Florida. Um, he needs our 29 electoral votes. There literally is no path for him to win the presidency without Florida. So they're going to be coming at us with everything. And, and they've indicated that, you know, that they will. Um, we can stop them. We are, in effect, a one state showstopper for Donald Trump, and we can send him into retirement. So I would think if I were a voter, I think the one thing that I'd like to leave people with is that the future of our country is at stake, um, literally. Um, And as, as I've heard from several people, this is possibly the most important election since the Civil War because of the direction of our country will be determined, perhaps even going back to, to, to the original elections uh, in terms of how the comp- country is going to go. Everything is at stake, including the Supreme Court, uh, which is extremely critical importance. So when you go to the polls or when you go to vote, who is it that you trust? Um, who do you trust to lead the country at this point? 
Is it Donald Trump who lies, you know, and uh, is inept leadership has has failed literally at everything that he's done, denigrates people uh, and and all of the the things that that we see him do, and and, and has totally failed in leadership in this pandemic, um, or you trust Joe Biden? has a, a proven track record um, of leadership and competence um, and uh, and will surround himself with people uh, who can help him carry the, carry the country forward. So that would be what I would ask voters to do. Who do you trust to lead us uh, when the future of the country is at stake? Terrific. Chairwoman Rizzo, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you here again soon. Thank you so much, Jeff. And I'd like to again thank thank you and everybody uh, in Collier for all you're doing and you know for as part of this effort. Um, we uh, can and we will do this working together. Uh, we are, as I said, more organized than ever before, and with with all of us, with our oars rowing in the same direction, um, we can uh, we can cross the finish line. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support. So we're going to talk about two topics today. Uh, The first is one that we've talked about a lot on the podcast, but it continues to be relevant, which is a spike in COVID cases around the state of Florida and specifically here in Southwest Florida. But also we're going to look into the two most recent Supreme Court decisions about DACA and the LBGTQ uh, discrimination case. So uh, let's dive into the COVID spike first. What we've seen recently, and actually today, Saturday, June 20th, the Florida Department of Health reported over 4,000 new cases, and that makes it the third straight day in which the record was broken for new cases in a single day. The pace with which these cases have begun to spike has been alarming, uh, but if you listen to this podcast, shouldn't be that surprising. We've mentioned it repeatedly, and... It's been predicted by epidemiologists and the state has had and the people around in the state have taken a substantial lack of precaution. And there's been a blind push by the government towards reopening, regardless of the health consequences. But I want to talk specifically about a Naples Daily News article that was reported uh, on Friday that the headline stated that Southwest Florida is shaping up to be the newest hotspot. And within that article, It goes on to the increase in cases here locally, the positivity rate. It quotes Governor DeSantis as saying, in response to the dramatic increases, we're not shutting down, we are going to go forward. And the governor has continually stated that the increased testing is to blame for the increase in cases, a fact that is not supported by the epidemiologist at all. Cases have been going up, but the positivity rate has increased significantly as well. The Naples Daily News reported that in May, Lee County had a positivity rate of roughly 4.9%. And one month later, that rate has nearly doubled up to 8.9%. Collier, conversely, in May was at 8.37%. And they are now at over 12.8% positivity. And just to point out, Epidemiologists will tell you that one of the things that you would like to see in a pandemic like this is that as you increase testing, you would expect the positivity rate to go down, not up. And that's because as the number of tests go up, hopefully you have more tests being conducted on people who are not symptomatic or do not have the virus, and thus your positivity rate should go down. So with the governor stating that All of these increases are a result of increased testing. What we should see is that the level of increases should match with positivity rates, and that's not happening. And the director of Lee Health, Dr. Antonucci, 
stated that it was his belief anecdotally that the main reason for the spike here in Southwest Florida had to do with people not wearing masks and not using proper social distancing as a reason for the spike. So I want to ask you guys, when do we think that Republican leaders at the national state and local level will ever begin to acknowledge that there's a problem? Uh, Or do we think that they are going to just try to ignore this as long as possible and stick their head in the sand like the president has done since the beginning of this crisis? You know, I feel like when you ask that question, Jeff, my mind is all over the place, just trying to take in all the different factors. You know, I, again, have gone back to work. And now, and this could be a pessimistic view, we have moved from really caring what any politician says, I feel, to everyone is done, they're tired, and they want to just carry on with their lives pre-COVID. And I think from a couple people that I've talked to, they understand that this is potentially a deadly virus to some. But I think that due to their age and, you know, where they are in life, I feel like they're willing to take the chance. That's at least what I'm seeing out there. But that, I think kind of what we talked about in the last time we, we spoke about COVID, which was just a week ago, that has to come from the top. One, when you are seeing the government say, it's okay, bars and restaurants are open, movie theaters are open. And then you expect the the populace at large who doesn't maybe follow the news and doesn't follow the numbers and read medical journals, you then expect them to just say, well, no, I don't know. I don't think maybe I should. They're going to go out and, and use those. Two, Now that things are open, some people literally have no choice because they work in these industries. So now they have to go out in public to supply the demand of these businesses that are open. And listen, we all want businesses to open. We all want this to be as back to normal as we possibly can, which is why I I cannot fathom how those people are not the same people who are not purporting to be wearing masks and social distancing. If we had those measures in place, even though I do feel like we opened way too quickly against the advice of the epidemiologists and health officials, but we would at least be able to stop the spread and keep people safer. But it's those same people who are the ones that are refusing. And it's all coming from the top. When the president will not wear a mask, you barely see a lot of these Republican leaders wearing masks, and that's where our our rules are coming from. So to answer your question, Jeff, no, I, honestly, I don't think they're going to come out and change. No, I don't think they're going to admit it. I think admitting fault is one of the things that many Republicans are worst at doing. And uh, I think they'll blame others. They'll brush it under the rug. Like DeSantis is now blaming this spike on migrant workers which sure there are spikes in migrant worker populations, but most of the spikes are in urban areas. There's only a small number. If you look at the total state's numbers that are in the rural agricultural areas, almost all of them are in our normal populated areas. So to put this blame on, on them is just wrong. Yeah. And I want to bring this back to the local elections and how those decisions here locally affect everything and how why everyone needs to vote in this election cycle and to your point amber about wearing masks and why aren't the same people saying that we need to open up and just keep pushing forward with this three-phase plan that the governor put forward are not the same people who are you know demanding that everyone wear masks it's just willful ignorance on their part they do not want to acknowledge that the virus is going to continue to spread And I just want to point out something with our local county commissioner. So in this article, this Naples Daily's News article, County Commissioner Bill McDaniel, who is in County Commission District 5, he is quoted in the article as saying that he will not entertain requiring masks to be worn. He's quoted as saying, how do you enforce that? Am I going to put people in jail for not wearing a mask? No. And then he goes on to say, I can educate populations on better sanitation practices, simple little habitual human instincts. Now, this is a 
classic Republican example on on how to absolve yourself of any responsibility to lead within a crisis. It's this argument that somehow, since there is not a perfect solution out there, that we're going to do no solution at all. We cannot try or attempt anything because perfection is not attainable. Why doesn't he just say, we're going to require people to wear masks and not put them in jail? Whoever articulated that we're going to require people to wear masks and we're going to put them in jail. That is, that is a, a false choice that is being presented. Like, what, why is that the two options in this scenario? And just to go further, in another news article in, in Wink News three days ago, a local resident was quoted about wearing a mask, quote, I don't wear a mask unless I'm made to. That yeah. is that is the, the the crux of the issue, is that the simple fact that you are not requiring people to wear masks sends the signal that it is not dangerous enough to require people to wear masks. And so people think, well, if, if it was really bad, they'd require me to wear a mask. And since they're not requiring me to wear a mask, it must not be that dangerous. It is an abdication of leadership from the Republican Party because of the president predominantly being so sensitive to the way it looks for him to wear a mask that they're willing to just ignore all of the scientific evidence. And just one final point, most recently studies have come out about the effectiveness of mask wearing. And the studies that have come out recently show that if you're out in public and you're not wearing a mask and you're standing around someone who is COVID positive, both of you are not wearing a mask, the infection rate is roughly 18% in that situation. So basically almost one out of five times you're going to get the virus. If you're both wearing a mask, that drops down to 3%. It's a six-fold reduction. So why in the world would you not wear a mask? It's not some existential threat to your liberty to wear a mask. I just don't understand it. And I think that goes to what Dr. Fauci said this week somewhat exasperatedly about the people in our country who have, one, a distrust of science, but also just a total lack of understanding of science and how that is really one of the major problems that we're seeing with this virus. He's upset that the people are not choosing to take precautions like they should. And, and that's what he attributes a lot of it to. Guys, this whole topic makes me sad. It just does. I mean, I'm, I'm out there and people just don't care. We have zero leadership coming from the top. We have zero leadership coming from our state level. We have zero leadership coming at our city level. I mean, we saw it happen when they were discussing about actually like issuing stay-at-home orders. I mean, the cluster duck that that was, just even trying to say that, you know? And, and so you're going to have all these people and every single one of them is passing the buck on what would be the best for society. And then you have every person naysaying science. And then I, I don't know how many people have sent me articles about how bad masks are. And I, to which I wanted to respond, well, then next time you have surgery, I hope that guy is smoking a cigar as he's, <laughs> as he's opening you up. Apparently, since masks are all bad, masks and sanitation practices, let's try your luck next time you get open heart surgery. Let's see how it goes. You know what I mean? I'm like, if masks were bad, then no doctor, no nurse would ever freaking use them. I mean, can we, can we think about that at, the, at its most basic of levels? And then I love it when people have sent me these medical professionals who I swear to God got their degrees from a Cracker Jack box. And then they have papers next to them. And they're like, well, I just read this study. And I was like, well, for the cheap sheets, what type of study was that? Okay. Every study from a reputable scientific journal says that masks will help your chances to fight anything, absolutely anything, and not just COVID-19. I just want to comment on something that you brought up earlier, Linda, which is in the lack of leadership area where you have everyone pointing at someone else. You're absolutely correct. This is something that we saw early on when the virus was just taking hold, where the governor was refusing to do any shutdowns or make any recommendations. And so local citizens were going to their local counties, their local city boards, and demanding that they do things. And what we saw in that situation is exactly what we're seeing now, which is 
the governor says now, well, I'm not going to make mask wearing a requirement, but any local municipality can do that. And then you get to the local municipality and they say, well, we're following the lead of the governor in the state. And so they both point at one another and say, well, it's not my responsibility to deal with this. It's their responsibility to deal with it. And then as a result, no one deals with it. But this is something that Republicans have gotten very good at. They're good at getting elected. They're good at being politicians. They are really bad at leadership and they're really bad at governing. And that is something that is fundamentally different between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party nowadays. Democrats struggle getting elected, but they do a much better job of governing, especially in times of crisis. In the last hundred years, Republicans have been the party that has been in control when there has been a major crisis. When you look at the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover completely just said laissez-faire, we can't touch the markets and let the stock market and everything else collapse. FDR had to come in with a robust government response to try to take us out of the Great Depression. You look at the civil rights movement, we needed Democrats in charge and John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson to push forward civil rights reform and Voting Rights Act and to do things like that that would push this country forward. You look in the early 90s when we had massive deficits from the Reagan and Bush administrations and long-term recessions that came from the end of Reagan through the Bush years. And we had a Democratic president that had to come in here and balance the budget and move us towards another thing. And then the Bush administration came in and took those balanced budgets and surpluses and just completely washed them away, led to the Great Recession. And Obama had to pull us out of all of that over eight long years of painstaking effort with no help from the Republicans with them blocking them at every single turn. And then Trump took all of that goodwill and now the leadership of the Republican Party has led us right back into a situation where Joe Biden, God willing, will be able to take over and try to take us right back out of it. So voters need to really think about, look at the history of the United States and every time a Republican president takes over, very quickly you start to see dramatic changes in how society operates. Mm, that would mean you would have to read history, Jeff. So I think that's a good place to stop right there on the COVID topic. We're going to transition into the Supreme Court rulings that happened just this week. There were two landmark rulings this week at the Supreme Court, both of which will have huge impacts on life. Um, let's start with the one that was a more clear and decisive victory the first had to do with discrimination of the LBGTQ people and in a 6-3 decision with two conservative justices joining the liberal wing of the bench, they made the ruling that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was sufficient to protect LBGTQ people from discrimination based on sex. This is a big deal. It means mm -hmm. that here in Florida, LBGTQ people are finally protected from being fired because of who they are or because of who they love. And for those of you out there that may be wondering, the state of Florida does not have any law protecting LBGTQ people from being fired from their job. And it hasn't been an abstract worry of LBGTQ workers. Uh, just last year in November, there were stories of a teacher in Orlando who was fired from the school. It was a uh, the Covenant Christian School in Orlando once they found out that she was gay. Uh, she never hid her sexuality from the school, nor was she ever made aware of about their discriminatory regulations, but she was still fired from her job because they found out that she had a girlfriend. And to remind everyone, the Trump administration was actively arguing to uphold the rights of employers to be able to fire someone if they are LBGTQ. They were actively arguing to the Supreme Court that employers should be able to do this. And the question I would ask is, what were you guys thinking when you heard about this ruling? Of course, we have always supported any type of legislation that supports our LGBTQ community. I don't know what else you can say about that. I feel like we got lucky. I think maybe it's important to mention the two dissents because they weren't necessarily anti-LGBTQ. They were more on the spirit of the civil rights law as it was stated. And I believe even Kavanaugh in his dissent, did say that this is a good day for the LGBTQ community, but he dissented on, on actual wording. Which is interesting because 
and this gets into the weeds about legal precedent and the Supreme Court in general, but the ruling itself was written by Justice Gorsuch, and he is one of the premier advocates for what's called textualism and what is a uh, philosophy in legal circles that states that you should only take into account the actual text of the law, that you should not take into account the intention of the law. And the argument goes that because as these precedents get older and older, you can't trust that we know what the true intent of the law was as we get further and further away from when the law was actually written. So all we have to go on is the text itself. And that's something that was is very common in all of the conservative judges on the court. They all have this background in kind of originalism or textualism in which you shouldn't take any type of changes in society and the way people view things into account when you read the law. The law is the law. And so what's interesting is when you listen to the uh, litigants, the lawyers who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, they literally tailored their argument to target Justice Gorsuch and his textualism bent. And they wrote their brief to the Supreme Court to try to sway him because they felt fairly confident that the liberal wing of the bench would side with them, but they needed to get at least one conservative judge to vote with them. And so they targeted Justice Gorsuch uh, in their efforts and it paid off. The interesting thing is, is that in the dissents from the other conservative justices, they make the argument that the intent of the law did not include sexual orientation, that when the, the lawmakers back in the 60s wrote the Civil Rights Act, that they did not have in mind that it should include sexual orientation. But this brings up a good question that I want to ask you guys, which is, this is an ongoing thing that we see in the Supreme Court where conservative voters over the last 50 years, ever since Roe v. Wade, have made the Supreme Court and the election of presidents who can nominate Supreme Court justices one of the key tenets to their voting strategy. Basically, that the overturning of Roe v. Wade has driven so many conservatives, especially evangelical conservatives, to vote for Republican politicians in the hopes of putting justices on the Supreme Court who will overturn Roe v. Wade. And now in future generations, other laws and other uh, rulings that they disagree with. And they have failed regularly. Now Gorsuch is the most recent example of a conservative justice put on the Supreme Court by President Trump and has ended up ruling in a way that is antithetical to the conservative voters who wanted to get conservative justice on the court. So I'm just curious, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I, I think that's an excellent question. I, so when you said that, I found a quote from Justice Gorsuch's opinion, and it said, the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands. So it's nice to see someone that has been called conservative potentially speak, but was it, I mean, was it the law and the way that it was presented kind of, it sounds like it gave him no choice. I mean, I yeah. don't know how he feels about it, but the way the case was argued and the way that the civil rights bill was enacted, you know, regardless of being a conservative or a liberal, that, that is the, the, the intent of the law is not to discriminate against anybody. And he's saying whether or not we anticipated the desires for our gay and lesbian community to want the same rights as you and I, we couldn't anticipate that, but it is here. So it can't be denied as a civil rights issue. Yeah. So one of the things that Justice Gorsuch focused on was in the law, it says you cannot discriminate because of sex. And so in his opinion, he makes a, a very poignant example of why the sex of the individual, not the sexual orientation, but the sex of the individual is key to the discrimination. And he says, if you had two individuals that are employed at the same office, one is a woman and one is a man, both have husbands, but you fire the man because he has a husband 
you fired him because he was a man, because of his sex. If he had been a woman, you would not have fired him for having a husband. Both have a husband, both have the same job, both have ex exactly the same characteristics in terms of job performance, and, but you fired the man because he had a husband. That was because of his sex as male. And that is why he says textually, the law says because of sex, you cannot be discriminated against. And so that's his argument. And he says that even though the limits of the framers intent, which means to say that the limits of the 1960s viewpoint on LBGTQ people, even though they didn't think that that should be happening, the law as it's written protects them regardless of the limits of their feelings on LBGTQ people. The other justices, the, the ones that dissented, Kavanaugh and Alito, I mean, Alito's dissent was 100 pages. So, I mean, he had a lot to say on this issue, and they're both concerned about the fact that maybe this should have been a presidential legislation. You know, so this was a, a, a landmark ruling on the case for LBGTQ people. And it's because of how Justice Gorsuch wrote his opinion, in addition to the fact that another conservative justice, Chief Justice John Roberts, signed on as well. Wow. The, the intent of this is basically making it uh, the law of the land without exception. And the only way this is really going to get overturned in any way is if the legislature, the House and the Senate pass a law that states that it is overturning the Civil Rights Act in some way to say that it is not covered. Uh, and so it's a huge victory for LGBTQ. Let's move on to the other case that was that was recorded, which is not as big of a victory. It is a, is a positive turn of events, but not as robust a win as uh, the previous one. And that involves DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. They're also known as DREAMers. The Supreme Court ruled in a five to four decision. The deciding vote on that was Chief Justice John Roberts. And they ruled that the Trump administration did not prove their case and that the roughly 800,000 DACA recipients are allowed to remain for now. Uh, the Trump administration today has just announced that they are already planning to refile the lawsuit to try and end the program. And the court didn't state that the program couldn't be ended. It didn't say that the Trump administration could not end the program. It simply said that the Trump administration did not get, give sufficient reason for doing so. And this is yet one more way that the Republican Party continues to cater to a very small minority within the American electorate. Pew Research shows that 74% of Americans support DACA recipients. This is similar to other topics that the Republican Party chooses to defend since gun safety regulations like background checks have north of 70% approval ratings amongst Americans. High capacity magazine bans also in gun safety regulations have a 60% approval rating. Doing too little to address climate change. Pew Research finds that 67% of Americans believe that the government is doing too little to address climate change. All of these issues are are winners in terms of legislation. It, this should be something that should be easy for legislators to get behind and to address. So I wanted to ask you guys the question, why do we think issues like this that are so popular across the American electorate, both Republican, Independent, and Democrat, are just unable to have any positive movement within the Republican legislature? It, well, I think that Honestly, the, the main issue with Republicans is that it comes down to money. Not only is it the money that they are getting from different lobbying groups, campaign donations from, from special interests, but also just that most of these issues are kind of social issues, if you notice. They don't really have a lot of economic benefit for the people at the top. And I think that that's one of the things that that they look into in making laws. If you look at a lot of the laws that Republicans pass, a lot of them are to benefit the people at the top, to give corporations more powers, to take away regulations from them. So when you get into social issues that generally help the people, the people on the mass, things like climate change, 
um, DACA, things like that, they don't think about that those are important because it's not economically benefiting them. I also want to point out, like, let's not forget who the DACA recipients are in this particular situation. I mean, there's 800,000 people that fall into this category in the United States. They are immigrants who were brought here as children and have grown up in America. For many of them, this is the only country that they remember. They are all in good standing, uh, working or in college, or they've been in the military. Uh, and, and all of that is part of their eligibility to be able to remain in the program. These are Americans in every way except for documentation. And the fact that Republicans are unwilling to assist them, it's really a shame on their reputation. Not only are you not stepping up to say that we're not going to allow them to be removed from this country, you're actively trying to do it. You're actively trying to make it so that they do remove all over some technicality in which they say it was an overreach by President Obama to allow them to stay in the first place. Well, if you believe that they should be here and you believe it was an overreach, pass a law, write a bill that says that they can stay. But you've never done it. The Republicans have never stepped up and done anything remotely close to doing that. And that is why it's clear that they have no interest in addressing this. And one final point, just to give an example of a type of a doc of American, ABC News reported this back in April, a man named Aldo Martinez, a Fort Myers paramedic who works long hours during the pandemic to care for the sick. He works in an ambulance, bringing people to the hospital. And the whole time he's dealing with COVID-19 and dealing with patients with COVID-19, he is also a doctor who's been recipient and he is worried about whether or not he's going to be sent back to his country that he doesn't remember or even know. And and so this is an absolute abdication of moral responsibility by the Republican Party. The fact that that you are going to take someone who is going to fight and to care for sick people during a pandemic and who has never known any other country than this one and you're going to allow him to be removed and sent back to a country he doesn't know is as bad as the Japanese internment camps during World War II. It is as bad as McCarthyism. It is as bad as it gets in terms of American history that you are just willfully ignoring people who should be considered Americans and are Americans in every sense except for papers. I would reiterate that I think this not only goes back to the fact that these DACA recipients provide any um, advantage to the Republican Party, and I'm sure that I, I'm saying that no, I don't believe that. I think they, they probably do have an advantage to them in some ways, but I think that a lot of the Republicans believe that the immigrants tend to vote Democratic, which is not 100% true, but as a whole, maybe they're slightly lean Democratic. And that is another thing going back to restricting voting rights. I think this is really a, a method in restricting voting rights. I think you're right, Amber. I think that's a that's such a draconian thing to say, but it doesn't make it untrue. And I think we've read articles and seen studies that attest to that. I mean, why would they care? They don't vote and they're probably not going to vote for us anyways. And back to my original point when we were talking about COVID and it ties very neatly with yours, Amber. Republicans are concerned and are good at getting elected. And this is a perfect example of it. And this ties in with their legal battle against the restitution of rights for convicted felons. And it ties into DACA, it ties into all of the different, the vote by mail arguments and all of the different ways that they're trying to affect getting elected. They are good at getting elected, but they are not good at governing. If you were good at governing, you would have handled this situation and come up with some sort of solution, but you're not interested in governing. What we think of as governing is making laws and actions that will benefit the people or look at the population as a whole. And I, again, it goes back to their business interests 
their corporate ties and it's not in their interest to help people as a whole. And that's why we, as people who seek the role of government is to manage a functioning society, which includes the bottom and the top, that's not a benefit to them. So that's why it looks maybe from the outside, like, oh, well, they're just not good at governing. I don't, I don't think they care about governing for the people as a whole. Yeah, you're probably right. It's not just that they're incompetent. They just yes. don't care. Yes. Whoa. All right. <laughs> Did that well, go dark? Whoa. We, right. went, we went zero dark 30 on that one. We're, We're going to leave it on that positive note. <laughs> so I'd like to thank Amber and Linda for coming on as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, as always. Thanks, Jeffy. So that's our show. I want to thank Chairwoman Rizzo for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for our theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We only have 126 days left until Election Day. We have one shot at this, so please step up and help us. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.